Thank you, Hope, for leading us in those songs of worship. And while we wait for our bridegroom, that would have been a good title for a message. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to the book of Ephesians. And we've been here for a number of of weeks, um, working our way through the early chapters at least. And so we're back here this morning, and maybe, how many of you saw the title to the message? Good. It seems like Wayne started a trend, and I think we say this every week. You know, we got to, somehow we have to come up with a title that, wow, what does that mean, you know? And Wayne asked me this morning, am I going to preach on fascism? It's like, you want me to? (laughs) Um, No, I I don't think so. Hopefully not. Maybe, well, we'll get to the, to the title uh, a little, in a little bit, but maybe by the time we'll get there, um, you won't be sure that it's really an appropriate title for the message, but I'll leave you to be the judge of that. We've been looking, as we've been going through these early, this early part of the book of Ephesians, of who we are in Christ In chapter 1, verse 2, we learned that Paul calls us saints. How many of you feel like a saint this morning? Some of you do. Well, all of you are that have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You may not be on a stained glass window somewhere, but you are a saint. Which means you are one who is holy. Or one who has been called out. So we are saints. We've also looked at where we have come from, what we were before we became saints. And Paul says in chapter 2, I believe, that we, are de- we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't just bad folks making bad choices. We were literally dead. The world is dead today. And we also talked about what we have received. Paul says that we have received Every spiritual blessing. So if Carl was here this morning, he'd say, well, let's get practical. (laughs) So hopefully we can get practical this morning. Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we do that, we become born again. Reborn. But it's interesting that Paul uses a different word. A word that was very familiar to his Gentile audience at the church of Ephesus. Those that lived in that Roman world, the the word that he used to describe who we are, they would have understood it. But Jews, I understand it was really a foreign concept to them. And we find that word in verse 5 of chapter 1. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 3 of that chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. The word is adoption. It's a familiar word to us as well. But why does Paul use it? Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again. We confess our sins. He is just to forgive us our sins. We are born again. Paul says here that we are adopted. What was his message? Why did he use it? And it's interesting, Paul is the only one of the New Testament writers that ever used this word adoption. He used it five times. The word is hyothesia. Hyos is the Greek word son. Hyothesia is we would say literally son adoption. Rarely were females adopted in that culture. Our salvation, upon our salvation, we not only become children of God and joint heirs with Christ, we're not just saved from the consequences and the judgment of sin, but we become adopted sons. Now, In our day, adoption is primarily, and I, I say primarily because there are other reasons, but primarily it's about nurture. There are untold thousands and thousands of children that are waiting for adoption to be nurtured, to be brought into a family, nurtured, raised as children. They are unwanted. And families will often take an unwanted child into their home to raise them as their own for the child's sake. It benefits the family as well. But primarily because of the need of the child. It was not so in Greek and Roman culture. The purpose of adoption was for the means of passing on the family name, passing on the family inheritance, and the family legacy. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul explains that the law, the law of Moses, the law of God given to Moses, was a guardian or a schoolmaster. Just as a minor child then and today is, the parents are like a guardian or a schoolmaster to train them, to raise them, to prepare them. So Paul says the law was given as that until Christ came. And in Galatians 3, verse 25, he said, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under the law. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We are now considered, we would say, of age or an adult. And then Paul says in verse 28 of Galatians 3, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. It's interesting today as we think about our own culture, our own nation, there are many proper nouns that are used as identifiers. Do we have any Native Americans here this morning? 
So none of you are natives. We all came from somewhere else. There's African Americans. There's Asian Americans. There's European Americans. There's all these proper nouns, I understand, that kind of defined of, we kind of hold on to those. But the truth of the matter is, we should all be simply Americans, right? Things would probably actually go a lot better if we just got rid of all those identifiers and we're just people living here in this place together. In the church, we don't have Baptist Christians. I mean, there are Baptists that are Christians. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Methodist Christians. There might be some of those too. There might even be a few Mennonite Christians around if you look hard enough. Well, we don't call ourselves that, do we? Or do we? The fact is, we are simply Christians, followers of Christ, and what Paul is saying, we are considered sons of God. Now, how many of you ladies like to be called sons? Nobody. How many of you men like to be called a bride? We sang about it this morning. It's a little difficult, isn't it? It's a concept that we have a hard time sometimes wrapping our mind around. But Paul is making the, the, the statement that in Christ we are all sons of God. What does that mean? In this passage in Galatians 3, I find it interesting that, that today there's, there's never an issue talking about the Jew and the Gentile, you know, the differences there. I mean, there are, but not, it doesn't really mean that much. Or whether you're a, you know, a Jew or a Gentile Christian or a slave or a free Christian. We're just Christians. Those are not even brought up. They're non-issues. But male and female, now we've got something. That's a different story. And some take it to mean that in the church, which Paul is addressing the church here, and what he is saying is that in the church, there is no difference between male and female. That's not what he's talking about. If it were, then he would have had to change what he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy about the different roles of men and women within the church. We are sons of God. In God's eyes, we are sons. But we have different roles in the church. The Holy Spirit is the one that tells us that through Paul. But in context, Paul is speaking here about sons in our, in our legal standing before God in this life and in the coming kingdom of God. We are legally sons. As followers of Jesus, we are legally sons. You know, we hear jokes about, about what heaven will be like. You know, if you're from a state up north, you know, you'll be on a side street. If you're from Ohio, you'll be on Main Street. There are no Main Streets in heaven. There are no side streets. There's no other side of the tracks. There's only one street. And whether we are male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, it does not matter because we are sons. We have all the rights and privileges of a son. And it's interesting as you study in what it meant to be adopted as a son into that culture, and when the Ephesians would have heard this, the Gentiles would have heard this, it was a big deal. They were no longer second-class citizens in God's kingdom. 
So what are some of those rights and privileges that we enjoy as sons? It's interesting that daughters, I understand, by and large, did not receive inheritances. But listen to these. Somebody said these words. If you are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is yours. That person also said, if you are meek, a meek person is one who is willing to accept and submit without resistance to the will and desire of someone else. So if we are a meek person, you shall inherit the earth. Not this sin-filled and fallen planet that we live on now, but the home of righteousness that is on its way. Who said those words? Who? Huh. He ought to know, right? He says that is our inheritance. That's what we can look forward to. The kingdom of heaven is ours. It's ours now, and it's ours in the future. The earth, we will inherit the earth. Paul goes on to say that we will actually judge angels. That's a pretty important position. And it's all a gift from God to those who have placed their trust in Christ. And that's only the beginning. We have this guarantee as adopted sons. In chapter 2 of Ephesians verse 4, Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, still to come, you, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable riches of Christ. We can't fathom what is in store for His sons, for His children. And then in verse 11, Paul brings us back down to earth. And it's, it reminds me of a school teacher who, who tells the class at the beginning of class, now at recess, we're going to go out and we're going to do this, we're going to have a snack, and they get all excited, and they're just jumping around, they just can't wait. And then the teacher says, now hold on, we're not doing this right now, we ha you have to wait for it. I never liked teachers like that. We get our hopes up and then, anyway. So Paul is, is seemingly doing that. He tells us to remember, he tells these Ephesians, Ephesian believers to remember that at one time you were outside looking in. You were a dis despised group in the eyes of the in crowd. All of us have experienced that at times in our, in our normal life. Being excluded from a group that is being formed. It might have been a team or a, a club or something. We know what that feels like. But we, never, we have never known what it's like to live in a Jewish community and be despised. The Samaritans certainly knew, knew that. They wouldn't even touch you. They wouldn't even look at you. You were the scum of the earth. 
and they made sure that you knew it. Not only were you viewed as trash, but you were without hope and without God in the world, Paul says. You were living in the shadows of those who knew God, who God had revealed Himself to. And you simply lived in the fear of the gods that had been invented and that you worshipped and in fear of man. But then in verse 13, Paul says, but now, that's back then, but now, he says, something has changed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, the One who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility, when He nullified in His flesh the law of commandments in decrees. He did this to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, so that through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God and His Spirit. God's original intent was never to take Gentiles and make them Jews. It was never to take Jews and make them Gentiles. He, took, he takes both and He brings us together at the foot of the cross. The cross is what brings every side together. We are no longer on the outside, but we're on the inside. So how do we respond to that incredible change? How did they respond? I think there are primarily two ways that we can respond. The first is, have you ever heard of the word uppity? You know what it means to be uppity? You know that uppity has a sound? It's called, huh! And you got to do this if you wear suspenders, Marvin. We know what uppity means. It means you're, you tend to be arrogant. You're stuck up. Now flip over to chapter 4 of Ephesians and let's look at verse 1. That's one way to respond. With arrogance, with pride, with selfishness. Now we are somebody. We were nobody and now we're somebody. Move over. I'm in charge. That's one option. Paul gives us the better way. I therefore the prisoner for the Lord. Huh, stop. It's interesting. Paul describes himself as a prisoner for the Lord. A prisoner. Paul doesn't sound very uppity, does he? He's actually practicing what he preaches. 
He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you two were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I get the distinct impression that Paul wants us to think of one. We are one. That is the proper response of being adopted sons. To think of ourselves as one. We sing the little song sometimes. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. It's a nice little chorus, but do we have a clue what it means or what it looks like? Which brings me to the title, A Bundle of Sticks. There was a father. He had a number of sons. They were pretty good sons. They worked hard. They did what he told them for the most part. But they were constantly bickering and fighting and they just couldn't get along. And the father was exasperated. How can I get my sons to think differently, to act differently as brothers? Finally, he came upon the idea of a bundle of sticks. He told his oldest son, go gather a bundle of sticks and bring them to me. So the son does. And he tells the oldest son, he said, now break that bundle of sticks. And so that son, he, oh, he just did, he couldn't break them. So he hands it, the father says, give it to your brother. So he gives it to the next son. And he does the same thing. He's, he just can't do it. And the next son, and the next son. None of them could break it. And then he tells the son, the oldest son, okay, break the bundle of sticks apart. And now break a stick. It's simple. His goal was in telling him his sons with a bundle of sticks. When you are united together, you have incredible strength. You can do incredible things if you are one. If you're an individual, you're easily broken. But when you stick together, no pun intended, you cannot be broken. I don't know if they got the message, but that's the moral of the story. Paul tells us as followers of Christ, we are to walk, we are to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And since we are sons, we're supposed to act like sons. And then he tells us how. In verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's interesting. This is, in my mind, this is all directed to us. It's not, this is not to be directed to God. 
We have humility before God, but we need to have humility among ourselves in the family of God. Sons is plural, meaning that there are other sons, there are other fellow heirs alongside us. And Paul tells us that we are to make every effort, do everything we possibly can to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Derek talked about peace in Sunday school. The world talks about peace. You know how the world will get peace? They'll get rid of everybody that doesn't agree with them. We see it happening. Peace through humility is what holds marriages together. Peace through humility is what holds family together and what holds the church together. Jesus said that He gives peace but it's not the kind of peace that the world gives. Peace that the world gives is just a ceasefire. Stop killing one another long enough to get something done. If there's someone you disagree with, either you avoid them, you ignore them, or you silence them. But peace that Jesus gives is different. Ruth is reading a book about the Mennonite mission in Somalia in the 1950s and beyond. And the Wesselhoff family was part of that work many years ago. The book is titled Peace Clan. And it's interesting, the name of that book was, was coined by the Somalis themselves. They knew all about clans, the non-peaceful kind. But this group, this clan of missionaries that came from the United States and Canada were different. And they were known as people of peace. We can spend a lot of time talking about being peacemakers, a lot of time talking about being peace-loving folks, and we can even use that loaded word at times called non-resistance. While ignoring what actual peace is as sons of God. We are called to bring peace into every situation that we are involved in. Every single conversation we should ask ourselves the question, how can I bring the peace of Christ here? I can't say that I've mastered this because I haven't. But just as walking is a process, so is becoming like Christ in life a process. Paul says that to be people of peace, it begins with humility. He says with all humility. It's interesting, another word for humility is meekness. And I had to think, well meekness, that kind of rhymes with weakness. But you know, the definition of meekness is completely opposite to weakness. Meekness is strength. Incredible strength. To do what is right in any given situation. To say what is right in every situation. Let me ask you a simple question. It's a dumb question, I know, but I want to see your hands because I want to take a picture. 
Is it easier to get along with someone you disagree with or someone that you agree with? It's a dumb question, I know, right? We always get along people with, well with people we disagree with, right? We don't. Notice what Paul says is, he says, he, he says this, putting up with one another. You mean I got to put up? Well, I guess you're putting up with me, right? You have to, we have to put up with one another because nobody's perfect. We say things, we do things that are irritating, that are hurtful, that are painful. He says, put up with one another in love. Humility always wears the attitude, I may be wrong. Maybe I don't have all the facts. Or even, maybe I have a thing or two to learn. At times, it actually may be more helpful, more peaceful to be silent than to be right. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. We know what it is to clothe ourselves, cover ourselves with humility. The wording implies, I understand in the Greek, it's to wear the apron of humility. An apron of humility. There was someone else who wore an apron. It says that on the night that he was betrayed, he took a towel and he wrapped it around himself. He put an apron around himself and he washed the disciples' feet. Even the feet of Judas who betrayed him to death. I need to close this morning, but our greatest witness to the world is just as Jesus said, a new command I give you. It's new. It's unheard of. It's not normal. To love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now let me be clear, there are legitimate reasons that separate Christians. And we can't diminish that. But we are called to do all that lies within us to live at peace. And it cannot be done without humility. I like the way J.C. Ryle said it. He said, keep the walls of separation as low as possible and shake hands over them as often as you can. There will be disagreements. We will have disagreements. But when we face them with humility, peace can shine. So this morning, we need to work at, I need to work at, keeping our sticks bundled rather than just a pile of individual sticks. Let's close our eyes this morning as we pray. And before we pray, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to think of a person in your life that you struggle with. I want you to, to picture them in your mind. 
somebody that may irritate you, somebody that you disagree with, somebody that's done something to you that has been hurtful and painful. I want you to see them standing in front of you. Now let's pray. Father, You know our thoughts. You know the person, the people that are standing in front of us in our minds that we struggle with. But Father, as people who are sons, who are Your rightful heirs, have all the rights of sonship, You have called us to live at peace. So Father, this morning, give us the grace, give us the strength to see that person and to truly forgive them. When Jesus hung on the cross, He could see those soldiers, He could see those Jewish leaders who were screaming at Him. And He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Father, we need Your help. We can't do this in our own strength. It is not humanly possible. But we as Your sons, as Your children, have been filled with Your precious, powerful Holy Spirit that has guaranteed all the things that are coming, but has guaranteed to work in us to help us walk faithfully. And Father, if we can't do that among ourselves in our marriages, in our families, in our church, we can't do it anywhere. So Father, give us wisdom as we walk and as we wait for Jesus' return so that we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we thank You for Your wonderful promises. I just pray that You'll go with us today Give us strength. Give us a spring in our step because we have so much to look forward to. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.